Hello and welcome to the Weekly Defence Podcast, the show about defence procurement and military technology. We are brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, Viaset. I'm your host, Richard Thomas, Senior Editor Naval, and in a special episode this week, we talk to a panel of experts, journalists and analysts about the future of Afghanistan. As the US moves closer to withdrawing its troops from the country, what are the political and military implications? But before we jump into that, it's time for some headlines from this week. Russia is planning an upgrade to its Su-57 fifth-generation multi-role fighter even before the first full-production version is delivered. New systems in the Megapolis R&D program are intended to give the Su-57 the characteristics of a fifth-generation fighter. Tests of the upgraded aircraft are expected to begin in 2022, with completion expected by 2024. Further west, the Defender Europe 20 exercise will culminate when a US-based combined arms battalion conducts an emergency deployment readiness exercise from the 14th of July to the 22nd of August. Defender Europe 20 has been completely transformed by the COVID-19 pandemic. It was planned to involve 37,000 participants from 18 nations with deployments to 10 countries, but its early phases were cancelled and later events heavily modified. And the US news is dominated by the major fire aboard the US Navy amphibious assault ship USS Bonhomme Richard, which broke out in the morning of the 12th of July and at the time of recording continues to devastate the vessel days later. Damage to the multi-billion dollar vessel, which appears to be listing, is extensive and concerns are growing that the ship could be lost. USS Bonhomme Richard, which was undergoing maintenance at the San Diego Naval Base, forms a centerpiece to the US Marine Corps Amphibious Ready Group, and its absence will leave a significant capability gap in the Asia-Pacific area of operations. So to discuss this and more, I am joined by Air Editor Tim Martin, Land Reporter Flavica Boris-Brera, and Multimedia Journalist Noemi Di Stefano. Hi all! Hi Rich! Hello! Hello! Let's get things started with a tri-domain focus, a new update on Italy and Egypt's extensive defence relationship, which continues to generate strong reactions from industry experts and politicians. Uh, in the case of Italy, this increased defence cooperation between Italy and Egypt uh, has drawn stiff criticism from those seeking answers for the unsolved 2016 murder of Italian national Giulio Regini in Egypt, allegedly at the hands of Egyptian security officers. So, Tim, first to you, if you could just outline to our listeners how extensive this defence procurement relationship between the two countries really is. Yeah, I think uh, it's quite extraordinary, actually, uh, what's being proposed. And we must say that um, there's some unsigned contracts here between uh, Italy and uh, Egypt um, that have been known about for for some time. But I I think why why it's worth talking about now is um, I spoke um, about this uh, to a number of sources because uh, I wanted to figure out on the spending front uh, how Egypt are, are going to afford all of what has been reported, um, you know, big deals between Italy and Egypt. As you mentioned, there's potentially 24 Eurofighter Typhoons, uh, 24 M346 uh, light attack trainer aircraft, um, six frigates, um, including two frame platforms and an un- unidentified uh, military satellite. That's the bulk uh, of the equipment um, that could potentially uh, change hands here between um, Italy and uh, Egypt. Um, So when you put it all together, that amounts to uh, roughly between 10.1 to 11.3 billion. Um, I think that's just unbelievable in in some senses because budget for um, Egypt in 2018 dipped to as low as 3.1 billion. So, you know, this isn't a tier one country 
you know, that uh, are looking to buy all of all of these pieces of kit uh, from various media reports, particularly in Italy as well, is that these are are becoming closer to being signed. Um, so yeah, when you and you also when you think about the the, the political context and and some of the things that have happened over the least you know over the past six months or so, uh, for example, U.S. government still putting pressure on Egypt uh, to stop buying the, the SU thirty five. Egypt is also attacked by. President Macron over human rights abuses and to use his quote in January 2020, the abuses themselves had gotten worse since he uh, last had a ministerial uh, visit to Egypt and spoke with uh, President al-Sisi. Um, when, you, when you put that together, it's, uh, you know, it does seem to be fairly uh, hard hitting here um, that, that Egypt are, is um, preparing to uh, spend I absolute fortune on defense equipment. And then you have to, I suppose, ask yourself then, if there's only, you know, 3.1 billion in the pot year on year, where are the other additional sources of funding? And I put that to, to experts. And one said that, in a nutshell, it was unclear to him where the extra sources of funding are coming from. And the other uh, source uh, said to me that, well, you know, previously uh, Egypt has used uh, credit and foreign loans from uh, Gulf states. And now she did say that uh, we know of this, we hear of it, um, but none of the Gulf uh, states ever confirm it or, or talk about it. Um, you know, but that is one point of interest here that... Uh, that that Egypt are effectively um, looking to, um, you know, looking to advances almost, and looking to uh, other other nations and particularly those uh, in the Gulf um, to to bolster uh, their capability for the finances. Yeah, for the finances. Yeah. So it's 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 very interesting on that front. Um, so, and um, we do know that a contract that has been signed, as we've talked about before, uh, it's not. Uh, a potential for a contract. This one, uh, the ink has dried on it, let's say. Um, you know, 24 AW149 multi-role helicopters and 8 AW189 uh, 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 super medium aircraft um, manufactured by Leonardo. Uh, there was also some unverified uh, images that surfaced on um, Twitter and social media platforms uh, that show the Egyptian uh, AW149 being test flown uh, out of uh, Vergate in uh, Italy, which is the Leonardo's flight test facility. Um, so that looks to be, that acquisition in particular looks to be at a, a very advanced stage. Also, I just want to bring in Noemi here as well, because uh, Noemi, you're on the ground in Italy. And uh, if I turn over this kind of discussion and debate on the increased defence cooperation uh, to you, are there any indications that the Italian government are bowing to pressure um, given the, the circumstances and the ongoing investigation um, into the Regini case that, that uh, Rich mentioned? Thank you, Tim. Um, I think this is one of those um, cases that I split my country um, in two because there is a dichotomy in between human rights and the economic interest. So on one side, we have the criticism due to the decision of Italy to answer positively to the Cairo arms sale request. Um, rights groups and the family of uh, the murdered Italian student, Giulio Reggiani, cannot understand why Italy would sign such a big deal with a country like Egypt, which has not uh, allegedly shown uh, a lot of cooperation in uh, uh, collaborating to the investigation of the Regeni murder. Uh, a series of investigation and trials have been conducted, but these have 
led close to nowhere, we might say. Um, so the murder remains unsolved. That said, to answer your question, I don't think that the Italian uh, government is going to change its mind on the deal because there are a lot of signs that show that the deal is going ahead. Uh, there are delays, but the deal is going ahead. Uh, the Italian press agency ANSA and many national publications, also the official government website, have confirmed that in a phone call um, in between the Italian prime minister and the Egyptian president, Al-Sisi, on the 7th of June, the two talked about uh, two main topics. One was the need to cease fire in Libya and reopen negotiations, and the other one was the Regeni case in the context of this deal. After this phone call, Italy sold two frigates to to Egypt, the Spartago Shergat and the Emilio Bianchi uh, frigates for 1.2 billion euros. And this sale of the frigates is just a part of a wider sale, as you mentioned, that could swing between 9 and 11 billion euros. And this is the biggest sale uh, for Italy since the, the end of the Second World War, since, since 1945, basically. So I don't think that the government would turn its back to a of this caliber, I don't think that is a possibility. But I might be wrong, so I guess we'll find out soon. Yeah, and what about the opposition parties in Italy? Are they bringing to bear any particular pressure on the government to, to reverse uh, its decision or, or how it's thinking on this one? There is some pressure, but I wouldn't say that this pressure is necessarily coming from inside the government. Um, uh, national papers have uh, reported that within the government there is a request for for some clarity, but uh, after several debates and meetings that have been held in Parliament, it doesn't seem that an agreement has been reached. Uh, back in June, the Prime Minister uh, sat in front of the Parliamentary Commission for the inquiry of the Regeni case and it stated in that room that solving the case remains uh, the country's priority. And remember that in every conversation that he has had with Assisi since the investigation on this uh, merger started, he has always urged the country, so Egypt, to collaborate. He also said that a partnership with Egypt remains at this time critical for Italy, but it requires cooperation on the case for this partnership to be unfolded completely. So the pressure is coming more from outside the parliament um, because there are a lot of rights groups that have been gathering in squares across Italy, um, in the capital, and these groups are calling for a need to reinstate a law, uh, the law 185 of the Italian constitution. Um, this law uh, was enacted in 1990. What is this law about? This law regulates the military export and forbids the sale to, of, of military equipment to countries in conflict under international embargo and uh, with severe violation of human rights. So the parliament has responded. Even populist uh, party members have mentioned in parliament that it's time after a few decades since the law was first enacted that we restore the primary objectives set by this law, which have probably shifted a little bit in, throughout the years from controlling the arm 
export to making it a priority. No, I mean, just, thanks. Just to jump in, if I can, sorry. Um, the, 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 Tim, you've, you've outlined the size and scale of these deals, the billions and billions of euros involved. Uh, Noemi, you've, you've sort of detailed the political aspect that will obviously play a role in what goes next and what happens next, where the relationships and defence procurement practices between the two countries can continue. My question, I think, to Tim and Noemi, yourself as well, is do you think that any negotiations, future negotiations, will continue to be done behind closed doors and very, very difficult for the likes of ourselves to get any details about what's being sold and at what price. Yeah, I'll take that first, Rich. Um, I think, uh, first and foremost, there are a, a, you know, a huge number of moving parts here. And as uh, Nomi as well articulated, particularly on the export control side of things, um, you know, there does seem to be um, an appetite for the Italian parliament to um, ad- address things on that front. Um, but, you know, with having reached out to some manufacturers, um, you know, not only in the last week, but previously when I've written on Egypt and, and focused on these um, these deals, um, there, there's absolutely no question that they don't want to talk about it. I mean, you know, they couldn't be any firmer, any clearer in the responses that, that they've uh, provided and issued to me. Um, they're not prepared to to comment on it uh, whatsoever. And I, I think in part, um, you know, there are obviously there are the sensitivities, but I think also the feeling is that um, it's the Italian government is firmly behind all of this. Um, you know, so even though it is Leonardo uh, helicopters and things like that, it's almost like a an FMS case for the manufacturer in the sense that it's in some respects uh, out of their control. Whatever the state decides is what ultimately uh, will will move forward. And so, um, you know, you have the manufacturers almost, their, their hands are in some senses tied because whether the deal goes through or not, they'll no, they'll be notified um, <laughs> once the Italian state um, declares it. Noemi, final thoughts? Yeah, uh, I totally agree with him. I think we can probably expect them to continue to keep this deal secretive or not wanting to make uh, an on-the-record statement until everything gets confirmed from the government side. And once this happens, if it happens, then won't be uh, much to be kept under wraps anymore. That's great insight into the, uh, the the interesting relationship that uh, Italy and Egypt seem to have. Flavia, over to yourself. You've been very patient. Thank you. You've taken a break from terra firma and cast your net into the Maria Alta with a story about South American naval icebreaker programs and the Antarctic region. So who's doing what and what? Yeah. Hi, Richard. Uh, Argentina, Chile and Brazil are modernizing their Antarctic naval capabilities. Uh, All these three countries, they have scientific and research civilian programs in the region. And uh, to, to... carry out these programs, they require uh, logistical support from their armed forces. And um, Brazil and Argentina are procuring vessels. The Brazilian Navy in June released a request for proposal to procure a new Antarctic vessel. And the the Brazilian Navy intends to, to build um, this vessel in Brazil. Also in June, uh, media outlets in Australia and South America run stories about uh, the Argentine interest to buy the icebreaker Aurora Australis. This vessel uh, belongs to 
P&O Maritime Logistics. It's an Australian company. And um, uh, the Argentinian Minister of Defense during a live transmission um, in his Facebook, he confirmed that Argentina sent a proposal to procure this vessel. And Chile is building two new icebreakers at the Astilleros Asmar shipyard. Uh, that's a national company. And uh, Chile is the culture that's Chile is quite close to Antarctica, I mean, the, the territory. And um, the country has many bases there. So it's interesting for them to invest on new capabilities. And I think all these cultures, and including Uruguay, who has bases in Antarctica as well, they are interested in the reason, uh, in the area, because of the same reasons other cultures are interested. Uh, Antarctica is an international area. And the, the climate change is changing the, the situation there. Um, it's impacting the, the area. And um, the, the ice there is melting. And it's probably in the future that previously frozen areas may open up for maritime traffic. And also... There is a possibility that um, uh, natural resources may be opened up for exploitation as the ice melts. I mean, countries have uh, overlapping claims across Antarctica. It's not really the, the borders and boundaries are not defined. One country will claim the territory of another, and it isn't obviously decided yet. So it's a very difficult operating environment for all these countries to, to, to operate in, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. It's a hard, hard area to operate, especially because um, it's basically ice. The area has only ice and uh, some animals. But it's interesting to to carry out research there. It it opens uh, new possibilities to discover new new medicines or new treatments. Uh, but I, I think this area has a potential for international disputes, international competitions in the future. For sure, uh, these these procurement programs that you've you've, you've outlined for us um, is this. In your, in your opinion, does this represent um, an increase in uh, military icebreaker naval capability in that region? Or is it a decrease compared to what was being fielded, let's say, 10, 15, a generation ago? Yeah, I, I'm sure it's uh, they are improving their capabilities. Argentina, for example, uh, the country has uh, only one icebreaker, the Aral Mirante Sar. And they are they are looking for a another vessel to complement this one that they have. Uh, Chile uh, is building two two new icebreakers, two two vessels, and uh, Chile already has other two vessels operating in the area. And in the case of Brazil, Brazil nowadays has two vessels, two polar vessels. And the country, uh, the, the Navy, is intending to replace one of them, the, the vessel Arirongel. And it makes sense because this vessel was built in, in 1981 and entered service with the Brazilian Navy in 1994. So I think including the case of Brazil that's only replacing a vessel, I think a new vessel will add new capabilities as well and will bring new capacities to Brazilian Navy.
Absolutely interesting. It, it's worth mentioning that uh, the 12 countries that signed the Antarctic Treaty in 1959, there's a whole bunch of them, obviously uh, includes Chile and countries like that, stated that Antarctica should be used for peaceful purposes, um, mainly science. Flavia, thanks so much. Really interesting. For more information on this story, all the news discussed in this episode and much more, please visit our website. Coming up next, I talk to a panel of experts about the political and military future of Afghanistan ahead of an impending US withdrawal. Viasat delivers resilient communications to warfighters in contested environments, on the ground, in the air or at sea. By providing assured access to mission-critical and life-saving information and leveraging Link-16 communications, Viasat gives warfighters the connectivity-driven clarity needed to maintain a tactical edge across the battle space. Drawing upon a more than 25-year tactical data link's legacy, Viasat anticipates the challenges of the next generation of warfighters and continues to deliver game-changing, industry-first innovations. For more on how new information-sharing technologies are aiding military operations, check out Shepard Media's Modernized Situational Awareness Special Report, sponsored by Viasat. In a break from the usual format, the Weekly Defence podcast is bringing you an extended panel discussion that will explore the geopolitical and military implications of the more than 15 years that Western and NATO forces have been fighting in Afghanistan, a conflict that has resulted in hundreds of thousands of military and civilian deaths in a country that could dearly do with the changing fortunes. Joining the panel will be Humphrey Hawksley, commentator, author of the newly released book Asian Waters and former BBC Asia correspondent and Beijing bureau chief, Dr. Dawood Azami, multimedia editor at the BBC World Service in London and associate fellow at the IISS. And Tim Foxley, an independent military analyst who formerly worked as a defence analyst within the Ministry of Defence. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. A question then for all three of you, just to get things started. I want to know what the legacy of the US-NATO invasion of Afghanistan is. Can the mission be called a success? And if not, was there a time during the campaign when success could have been achieved? If we can go to Humphrey Hawksley first. Um, well, I think, you know, if you're a family running a business in Afghanistan, making money, your daughter's going to school, all that sort of thing, then you can say it's been a success and good for you. But if you're one of the loved ones killed daily, the families of the babies murdered in the maternity hospital, the Sikh shot dead in that temple and all of that, then it's been a failure. And then if you look at it strategically, uh, any mission that negotiates a deal with the very terrorists, as they were called, that it went to, to, to dethrone, while excluding the elected government from that deal, you can't really categorize that as success. And, and the original mission was to stop al-Qaeda using Afghanistan as a base. But what actually happened was that al-Qaeda gave birth to an even more brutal ideological force in the form of Islamic State, and second, I think this is crucial, uh, the US and the Taliban, uh, the, the original mission there was that it wasn't used as a base. Yet that was part of one of the negotiated elements of the agreement. So if you have to negotiate your original mission with your enemy, you can't call the overall uh, mission a success. Having said that, though, as far as legacy goes, it gave NATO a mission way outside its original geographical area. And that acts as a precedent for NATO going elsewhere in the world, which is probably, as we'll 
no doubt discuss later on, moving eastwards into the Indo-Pacific area. Uh, so that is a precedent there that NATO has got, it's had this mission, it's now got another mission uh, that it can go to. That's a significant um, thing. And as for, was there a time? I think there may be two times, speculatively. One is that if 9-11 had been categorized not as a, a, as a war, but as a criminal act by a transnational criminal organization or whatever you want to call it, yes. And secondly, if the focus had stayed on Afghanistan and not gone to Iraq. But those, that's all way in history. That's decades ago now. So I think we are where we are. Tim Fox, are your thoughts? Thank you. Um, legacy implies a historical perspective. And um, history is generally written by the victors. And I've, I've argued for a while now that this game is still in play. Uh, the, the dice are still rolling, if you like. It's complicated by the fact that the, the mission has is, is, is been uh, very difficult to pin down. I mean, it's evolved. It's been very fluid. I mean, initially, get bin Laden. Uh, later, as, as a sort of subset of that, it was not the Taliban out because they've been uncooperative. And then it was, well, what do we do with all these warlords? And maybe we better set up a central government. So it's been fluid and evolving. Uh, it was probably easier to define, um, you know, 2002, 2003. It was get the bad guy, help set up a government before it evolved into a, you know, a pretty brutal civil war. So um, I guess that's my first, my first caveat is that I think this is still in play. Um, I, I've seen a lot, of, a lot of analysts kind of over the years now saying, why did we lose? What were the lessons? You know, where did it all go wrong? It hasn't, it hasn't finished yet. I know it's, it's, gone, it's gone extremely badly. And I, I take Humphrey's point about we're now negotiating with, uh, with the Taliban. But I think that's the way most insurgencies end at some point. You have to kind of sit down and talk face to face. Um, from my personal sort of perspective as a, as a Ministry of Defence analyst, which I was for, for most of this, this period, was there a time, the, the time that I and maybe we in the, in the MOD were most optimistic was the sort of 2003, 2004, 2005, when, you know, the Taliban were kind of long gone. <laughs> um, we'd had a, a transitional government set up with Hamid Karzai, and we'd had an election, an actual proper election uh, in 2004. And, you know, Hamid Karzai was on BBC saying, this is our, this is our golden chance. Um, and it really, it really felt then that there was a possibility for this start, you know, for, for the ducks to sort of lining up and this going in the right direction. Um, obviously, we all know that the history now that the Taliban weren't gone and they were coming back. But at the time, it's, you know, in hindsight, it's, it's quite easy to, to say, oh, well, you know, of course the Taliban were coming back. It's obvious. Um, but that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the case back in the day. And it wasn't just naive Westerners. I, I, one of, one of the, the sort of meetings that I had in probably 2003 with, with a very senior Afghan official who is still a very senior Afghan official, uh, you know, at, at, at the top level. And I, I managed to ask him in the midst of a, a kind of a, a formal dinner. I managed to throw in a, a quick question at the end. And I said, you've, you've talked about, you know, the importance of reconstruction, the need for aid and, and development money from the West uh, and all the challenges facing, you know, education for, for, for children. I noticed you haven't mentioned the Taliban once. And he, he waved his hand and said, the Taliban are gone. Uh, you know, they're, they're not coming back. So, so what we now see as obvious, 
is, is perhaps the benefit of hindsight. And it wasn't just kind of Western naivety that believed that there was an opportunity for Afghanistan in this, in this early period. Dr. Zami, your thoughts about NATO's legacy in Afghanistan? Well, I think they have a mixed legacy. The war in Afghanistan has already become the longest war in U.S.'s history. It is longer than World War I, World War II, and the Vietnam War combined. And it is also the biggest mission in NATO's history. And the war in Afghanistan today is the biggest war in the world. So these are just some basic facts. But when we go back to the original mission, it was uh, to disrupt, defeat, and dismantle the Al-Qaeda network and punish the Taliban regime in Afghanistan for allowing the Al-Qaeda leadership to stay in the country. So we all know that uh, the Taliban regime was toppled in uh, 2001. Al-Qaeda was disrupted. Many of its leaders and members were killed uh, and uh, captured. Osama bin Laden was killed a decade later in a U.S. military raid in Pakistan. Uh, but uh, Al-Qaeda is still around. In some ways, it is more powerful than it was uh, two decades ago or in 2001. There are still a few hundred Al-Qaeda members operating in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region, uh, but uh, Al-Qaeda has found new and perhaps bigger sanctuaries in other countries, especially in Libya, in Syria, in Iraq, Yemen, Somalia, and many other parts of the world. So. Uh, Al-Qaeda hasn't been eliminated. Uh, when it comes to the Taliban regime, which was toppled in late 2001, but the group uh, reorganized and re-emerged as an insurgency a couple of years later. And before uh, completing uh, its mission in Afghanistan, the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003. I think that was uh, a good chance uh, to be successful in Afghanistan, but resources were shifted to Iraq. Afghanistan was somehow uh, forgotten, and the whole focus moved towards Iraq. And that was the opportunity which was used by both the Taliban and regional countries who started interfering in Afghanistan once again and made Afghanistan uh, a battlefield for themselves. So that opportunity was missed. And uh, the Taliban became more powerful with the passage of time, and uh, the number of uh, Taliban fighters is estimated to be more than 60, 60,000 today. Uh, so they are operating in many parts of the country, and uh, in addition, new violent extremist uh, groups emerged uh, in Afghanistan and uh, in the wider region, such as IS or Daesh. Uh, which didn't exist in 2001. And uh, well, we all know that uh, ISIS emerged in Iraq and Syria first, and then in January 2015, it announced the establishment of its Khorasan province, which is a branch uh, in uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan region. So the emergence of ISIS made the militancy landscape in Afghanistan and the wider region more complicated and more challenging. But when it comes to state building and, and reconstruction, uh, there has been a lot of uh, uh, success and many achievements. Uh, the US and the rest of the international community spent a lot of money, uh, but it is also a fact that a lot of money was wasted or lost to corruption and mismanagement. 
nevertheless, Afghanistan is a changed country in many ways. Millions of children go to school. There are more than 20 universities today in Afghanistan. There are dozens of TV channels. Uh, there's a vibrant media and uh, uh, many other achievements when it comes to construction and reconstruction. Roads have been built, clinics and schools have been built. Uh, but uh, the war is still going on. As I said at the beginning, Afghanistan, uh, the Afghan conflict is bigger than Iraq, Syria, Yemen, uh, Libya combined. Uh, in terms of uh, the number of casualties, it uh, causes to both sides as well as the civilians. But uh, there is hope. It seems all sides have realized that there is no military solution to the conflict in Afghanistan. The US and the Taliban signed a peace deal on the 29th of uh, February uh, in Doha and the intra-Afghan dialogues, meaning the talks between the Taliban and other Afghans, including the Afghan government, are expected to start in the next few weeks and months. And there's a rare consensus at international level as well as uh, regional level and inside the country that uh, there is no military solution to the conflict of Afghanistan and uh, uh, everybody needs to talk. And this is a golden opportunity, I think, but it can be missed if it is not tackled with care. Yeah, interesting opening thoughts, gentlemen. Thank you. Dr. Azami, I just want to follow up with that. Um, as the the memory of the many hard lessons learnt in Afghanistan by Western forces made them unwilling, or unable, but unwilling to engage in such interventions in future, does this, as seen in Syria, potentially leave a vacuum of influence and power that other global actors are more willing to fill? Well, it's obvious when the US and NATO uh, pull out, other players, especially regional players, will fill in the vacuum. And uh, there is a fact that uh, uh, countries, especially big powers, uh, uh, don't learn uh, their lessons quickly. Uh, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979 and uh, left the country uh, around a decade later, uh, nobody thought that another superpower uh, will invade Afghanistan uh, just a decade or so later. And when the U.S. was invading Afghanistan, the U.S. didn't uh, think that uh, it will be so costly uh, in, in terms of both blood and treasure. And everybody thought, the U.S. and NATO officials thought that, no, we are different from the Soviet Union. We wouldn't be repeating the same mistakes. But the, many of the same mistakes that the Soviet Union made in Afghanistan were repeated, especially uh, when it comes to military operations and the killing of civilians. Uh, many innocent people were arrested, and some of them were even sent to Guantanamo. Some of them spent 10, 12, 13 years in Guantanamo, and then they were released without charge. So a lot of mistakes were made in the war. Uh, a lot of opportunities were missed. Uh, but I wouldn't say that this will be the last military intervention of the West. I'm sure uh, many others will come. Nobody thought that Iraq would be next. And then nobody thought that uh, it will be Syria's turn. Then Libya came. And then uh, look what's happening in Yemen and Somalia. Uh, and uh, the U.S. has been actively engaged in more than 10 countries when it comes to uh, counterterrorism operations or uh, counter-extremism operations uh, or actively uh, carrying out military operations through drones or other means. Uh, 
but uh, it is clear that uh, a lot of mistakes were made, uh, and it is hoped that lessons would be learned. But it is also a fact that lessons are forgotten very quickly. Absolutely, they are certainly, um, Mr. Hawksley. Uh, how does the Afghanistan conflict, or how has it changed military? procurement and counterinsurgency doctrine among NATO and allied countries that have participated in the war. Prior to the war, I'll, I'll, I'll only speak personally, that I didn't know what an MRAP was, but now that's an acronym that everyone who's interested in military vehicles or anything, they, they, they understand that exactly. So how has this war impacted doctrine, procurement? Well, what happened was that when uh, 9-11 happened and, 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 uh, and that war began, or the is that the whole of the sort of defence research establishment had to do a switch. And from the Cold War mentality, it had to work out how to do a, a, you know, an IED defence mechanism, how to do simultaneous translations at roadblocks so that the soldiers wouldn't get confused and all that sort of thing that, that reverberates around a counterinsurgency. Uh, what is happening now is that that is, having, that is switching back. And over the past year, you would have seen the, the rhetoric feeding into the political debate, feeding into the budgets of, um, of defence procurement. So the rhetoric is going down on terror and up on China. And as that happens, you feel that, uh, you know, we, we know that the terrorists are our enemy, but they're actually less of an enemy than China now. Uh, you know, China is being built up to be the big enemy, particularly for the November election. So then you get the statements that surround, say, the Pentagon's latest defense budget saying operations and capabilities uh, will strongly position the U.S. military as greater power competition, great power competition. This isn't al-Qaeda competition this is for decades to come. Long-term strategic competition, not terrorism, is now the primary force for national security. Now, if you take that into, you can see that the whole of that sort of, you know, somebody walks into the office and they say, what are you working on? Oh, I'm working on the new hypersonic missile to defeat the Chinese. Oh, yeah, you, you've got, what are you, oh, I'm working on this latest new IED thing. Oh, you're way down. Nobody wants to talk to you anymore. And that goes right through the whole of the defense establishment. So in our case in Britain, for example, uh, we've pulled out of Afghanistan, Iraq. These are all bit, bit things on the news in, in, case, in case there's a sort of major killing or something like this. But no, we're look, talking about carrier groups going to the Asia-Pacific region. That's the big sort of thing. That's what the prime minister's talking about, you know, the, the, the east of Suez policy, that's changed completely. And then interestingly, with those carrier groups that's going out there is being deployed, the Dutch, the French and the Americans are all so far part of this new deployment that's happening. So then you can see the forging of a new defense mindset. And that means essentially that the, what's happening in Afghanistan and has been happening over the 20 years is going to go way down the agenda. So whatever happens with these things we've been talking about, the dialogue, this, that, and the other, the West, the people with the money and the weapons and that, they're not going to care that much about it because they wouldn't have the political bandwidth to care that much about it. Yeah, anyone that's uh, travelled 
the world as I do, going to conferences and various shows, knows that the rhetoric, as you say, about great power competition, that's been that's been a staple for the past twelve months or so. So, an interesting change in in in, in sort of approach. Uh, Tim Foxy, quick comment. Yeah, no, just what I just kind of wanted to echo that, but from from my perspective, you saw the procurement evolve in that in that early period to move towards you know changes in uniform, changes in camouflage, a lot of uh, mine anti mine countermeasures. The um, the thing I remember bouncing around in in my early trips to Afghanistan, oh two oh three, was was the Land Rover, and and that you know there was there was the big scandal that this doesn't protect you from anything. This is what you had in Northern Ireland for the low level stuff. Um, and, and I remember up until 2006, that was the means by which you travelled. Uh, and when I went back on my, my second tour, my second operational tour, there was a lot more focus about body armour, uh, personal protection equipment, and, uh, and going around in armoured vehicles. You said, you said MRAP, yeah. I mean, it was, it was all about these, these sort of mobile armoured vehicles rather than, you know, the, the, we saw the, the demise of the Land Rover as, as one of those sort of procurement processes. We'll be back with more on this topic after a short break. Viasat helps warfighters operating at the tactical edge stay safe and successful in their missions by providing resilient communications in contested and congested environments. For more on how new information sharing technologies are aiding military operations, check out Shepard Media's Modernized Situational Awareness Special Report, sponsored by Viasat. Tim, from your perspective, there were clear divisions of responsibility between US and NATO allies operating in Afghanistan. They're assigned different areas of operations. Obviously, that's a military decision uh, based partly from my perspective on military competencies, but also were they due to restrictions as to how their forces could be deployed and could be operated? If that's the case, to what extent did this difference in operational tempo and ability uh, impact the ability to secure a mission victory? I mean, firstly, <laughs> what was the mission victory at that point is, is, is difficult to, to pin down. Um, but, but also, I don't think there were clear divisions. I, th- I think ISAF was, was hamstrung from a very early period by, by a lack of clarity about... Because they didn't know what the mission really was, or the mission was evolving and creeping in different areas. The Americans were in the south-southeast from a very early period. They were still chasing the terrorists and the bin Ladens. Um, other countries wanted to do... Uh, you know, more hearts and minds sort of thing, reconstruction, build a bridge, dig a well, build a hospital. So I don't think it was very clear. There, there was, there was a, there's an intention that, you know, the Americans and to a large extent as well, the Brits, maybe the Canadians were doing the, you know, the sort of the hard fighting stuff, which directed them more naturally towards the, the south, southeast and east. And other countries could sort of more or less do what they wanted. I mean, I mean, ISAF blossomed. I mean, it was 40 plus countries, uh, you know, before before NATO pulled out in 2014. Um, so I think a lot of countries picked and chose what they wanted to do. And, and, and the sort of the hapless ISAF commander of the time uh, was, was forced to kind of juggle, okay, well, if you, if you won't do this and you'll do that, maybe we'll put you over there. And normally it was, you know, if you don't want to get involved in fighting, you go up, up to the north somewhere. That was, that was the kind of setup. And, and I, I visited the British PRT in 03 was at Mazar-e-Sharif when, when there, were, there was just a few kind of prototype provincial reconstruction teams going out there. So I visited the Brits up there and they spawned another British PRT in Faryab in the northwest. And by the time we got to 2004, 2005, the Brits were shaping up to move south to Helmand. And we transitioned over to the, the Swedes, took over the, um, 
the, the Mazar PRT and the Norwegians took over the, the Farrell. And I visited both of them at different periods in, in 06 and 09. So crudely put, you're right, some, some countries were more willing to fight than others and they, they drifted to the south. Uh, and the PRT is, is a really good example. I mean, each province in the end had a provincial reconstruction team. Um, and it was down to individual countries, as far as I could see, to pick and choose the, the area that they wanted to, to base based on what they were prepared to do. And each nation wanted the, um, you know, they wanted skin in the game. They wanted to have their flag over, over the PRT and say, this is us, this is our contribution to Afghanistan. And, and in many occasions, they just wanted to be able to demonstrate that they were spending money and, and doing some good works. Here's the bridge we built. Here's the, here's the hospital roof that we fixed. Um, and I, when I was, I was briefly with the Norwegians and, uh, and one of the development advisors said, um, this is the, uh, the PRT handbook put together by ISAF. Um, it's a really thick document. All the, all the lessons learned, if you like, all the best practice collected ISAF PRT handbook. And she said, it's actually quite a good document if only people would use it. Uh, and it was, it was never really used in the way it was intended. There was no sort of coherent kind of, this is the way we do PRTs, this is the way we operate. It was countries are going to do their own thing driven by their own, their own national governments. So I don't think there were clear divisions. I think there were, there, were, there were kind of a few main foci, let's go down the south and fight the Taliban, or we do hearts and minds up in the north. But, but it was rarely more specific than that. Gentlemen, we've probably got time for one more question. I'm going to go at it in reverse order from the first one. So my question is, will any peace agreed during the current process of negotiation stick? And what regional factors and actors are looking to gain and maintain influence in Afghanistan once the US, once it's all, all its military might, once all its diplomatic power has left that country? Dr. Azami, you first, please. Thank you, Richard. Uh, the regional uh, strategic landscape has changed dramatically over the past few years. Initially, Russia, China, Iran, and many other state actors in uh, that part of the world supported the U.S.-led mission in Afghanistan. But later on, things changed. Today, Russia, China, Iran, and Pakistan are all against the permanent or long-term U.S. and NATO military presence in Afghanistan. They all want the U.S. to pull out, but they also want the U.S. and NATO to withdraw its forces responsibly so there is no security vacuum. But the main point is that peace should be incentivized. The Afghan peace process has entered a very sensitive and important stage, and the U.S. has already agreed with the Taliban that it will withdraw his forces, all of his uh, troops, within uh, 14 months uh, since uh, the uh, agreement was signed in February uh, between the Taliban and the U.S. So that's one point. The second point is that there are spoilers. They include regional and international violent extremist groups such as ISIS and other militant outfits that are traditionally focused on fighting in the Indian-administered Kashmir. And then there are state actors in the region that have issues with each other and have been using Afghanistan as a battlefield. So there is a need for a regional and international framework which will involve regional countries as well as key international actors, especially 
the US and the EU to do mainly three things. One, to coordinate peace efforts. Second, to deter and prevent spoilers and war profiteers from undermining the peace process in Afghanistan. And third, to ensure that the relevant state actors are on the same page and to avoid any suspicion about each other's intentions and misperceptions about the end goals. Uh, but as I said earlier, this is the second phase of the Afghan peace process. The first phase was mainly between the Taliban and the US. The second phase is mainly about Afghan actors, but they need to be pushed by key regional and international actors. They need to be supported by all the relevant actors so they could reach a political settlement. Once they sign the agreement, the challenge will be to implement it. In that phase, the Afghan actors will also need the support and encouragement and pressure in some case to implement the deal. But uh, there is hope now, as I said in the beginning, uh, this is a golden opportunity, but uh, if it is missed, I don't know, uh, there will be uh, more hardship and the conflict in Afghanistan might become more complicated and more dangerous, not only for Afghanistan, for the Afghans themselves, but also for the wider region, even Europe, when it comes to drug production or migrants and uh, 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 violence and the rest of it. So uh, there is something for everyone in this peace process. And the suggestion is that everyone should support the peace process in Afghanistan. Tim Foxer, your thoughts? Thank you. Um, I've looked at Afghanistan for 20 years. Um, and it's not a very long period of time. To, to look at look at these sort of complex developments. And I've only looked at it from a narrow perspective. Half of my time has been for you know working for the British government. But but from what I've what I've seen, and I've seen these sort of cycles of events and, and violence and, and, and prospects and talks, what I've seen leaves me really pessimistic. I don't I don't see this going in a good direction. Um, I wanna I wanna read you something. Um, it was in the New York, New York Times article in, in 2013. And it was, it was based on a speech given by the French ambassador who was leaving. He was, he'd done his end of tour and he, was giving, he had a little gathering in Kabul to say thank you. And he, 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 he said these words. He said, um, I still cannot understand how we, the international community and the Afghan government, have managed to arrive at a situation in which everything is coming together in 2014. Elections, a new president, economic transition, military transition, and all this, whereas the negotiations for the peace process have not really started. He's talking about uh, a perfect storm. Um, and this was back in 2014. And I guess we could take slight comfort from the fact that it was seven years ago and we haven't collapsed. Afghanistan hasn't collapsed. But I... But I I think this, this Bajolet comment is, is, is something that I would sign up to now in, in 2020, except I think it's even more, you can't have a perfect storm, can you? It's an even more perfect storm. I think we have even more problems facing Afghanistan. The, the situation is worse. And we do have great respected experts, Thomas Ruttig, uh, Michael Semple, basically saying 
the Taliban aren't really going to be negotiating. They're preparing to return to power. Um, my concern is that the talks will go nowhere and we will slowly slip back into a, into a civil war. I don't think it'll happen overnight. It won't happen this year, probably not next year. But I think in the next three, four, five years, we are at a high risk of it sliding back to something approximating what we saw in the mid in the mid nineties when we had a, a big Taliban faction and we had warlord factions and we had, as, as Dr. Zemi has, has, has already spotted, the um, the usual suspects, the neighbours, the Pakistan, Iran, Russia, interfering and meddling and backing their their preferred um, preferred faction. Um, so we have two extra factors that we did not have in 2014, which we did not predict because we could not predict. One was COVID-19, which is, is going to be highly damaging to Afghanistan, economically, politically, healthcare. It's barely functioning at best anyway, uh, and from a security perspective. Uh, th there are reports now saying, you know, the Afghan National, National Army is, is being badly, badly hit. Americans are no longer training them because it's, and they're confining themselves to base because of the risks. I think this is a, this is a very damaging factor at a, at a key moment. And the factor, again, that we could not predict back in, in 2013, 2014, was the, was the Donald Trump element. Like, more or less a rogue American regime. I mean, whatever America has done in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, you roughly knew where they were going and you could understand the logic and there was logic and there was thinking. And now Donald Trump is ignorant, incompetent, and corrupt. I mean, please say if you, if you disagree with me. He has no more interest in Afghanistan than he, than he has in, in anything else. He's not interested in it except if it contributes to his election victory in, in November. So if that means a photo op with the Taliban and giving them what they want, if it means a photo op of American troops landing back in America, I've brought the boys home, aren't I great? He will do that. That's the extent of his interest in Afghanistan. So as Dr. Zemi has already said, we need, we need a slow, careful, step-by-step -step managed withdrawal. America has to withdraw from Afghanistan. Of course, of course it does. It has to be done in a coherent way with a plan. We don't have that at the moment. So uh, we're going to see a lot of lurches. And, and for those reasons and the others, I'm pessimistic. I, I do not see this going in a, in a positive direction. I'm sorry for that. And Humphrey Hawksley, any optimism? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I completely agree with, um, with Tim, Dr. Azami, but from a slightly different perspective. Um, we're now moving into a new era of great power politics that we discussed. And Afghanistan could become either a sort of stable Stan state looked over by two opposing superpowers, or it could be used as a proxy war. But because the rising superpower is China, China avoids wars because it needs its economy. Afghanistan butts right onto its Belt and Road Initiative. It is thinking of signing up or incorporating, and this is another sort of interesting point as, as, as China rises, uh, Afga the whole Afghanistan thing into the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization that is sort of, we don't know much about it in the West, but they're building that up to be a sort of, I don't know, a NATO, an EU, or whatever, a regional thing. Now, all of this is sort of working under, under the things. But if you think of it, you've got Iran on one side, you've got Pakistan, which is, is shoulder to shoulder with China on the other. You've got India, which is losing out on the 
whole Afghan deal thing, but at the same time, America wants to bring India on side. You can imagine the discussions in the, in the corridors of power over the Zoom things to try to make this work so that the Taliban and the corrupt warlords and the this and the that, and these people that have been unable over 20 years to forge a, a stable, peaceful place, are told by the, the higher powers, you, you, you're going to do this, otherwise you're going to lose this, you're going to lose that, you're going to lose the rest. I can see that working in a, like a one in 10 chance of it working. But if it doesn't work, then I, can, I go with Tim completely and I can see it dropping into, a, into more civil war. But because of the superpower involvement, it will become more civil war with a proxy war involved. And the funding will be there, the training will be there, all that mess that we saw in the Arab Spring, uh, and, and that will be there. And just finally to wrap up, if, if we see what America has accepted in Iraq, the Iranian influence in Iraq, that balance that is going on in Iraq, of course it's not working, but, 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 it, but it's sort of there, isn't it? That could quite easily shift into that sort of give and take, compromise, horse trading in the, in the regions between the warlords and the groups and everything, so that it doesn't impact again on the West. And if it's not impacting on the West, the chances are that the Afghan people, for want of another phrase, will sort things out themselves. Because whenever you go to, the, to uh, you know, countries all around that I've covered these conflicts, whenever there's a foreign, uh, you know, people are looking to foreign powers to help them, there's a mess. Whenever they have to sort it out themselves, and like in some godforsaken part of Africa that nobody's ever heard of, they tend to sort it out. So that's my... You asked me for optimism, so I gave it to you. Whether I quite believe it or not, I have no idea. <laughs> but that is a scenario that is coming up. Uh, and, and this scenario of, the, of the, the, the bigger powers that weren't there. I mean, if you think 20 years ago, China wasn't what it was today. There was no Belt and Road. Uh, there was no, none of the, the pushing through. And what is happening at the moment, and I think partly is that China is pushing out, as we know, and the West, Trump or not, he might be gone in a few months, is pushing back. But it's not going to be, hopefully, through the barrel of a gun. It's going to be through compromise and arrangement. And quite possibly that same compromise and arrangement might be able to become embedded into Afghan politics. And on that note, we'll have to, to leave it there. My thanks to our speakers, Dr. Dawood Azami, Humphrey Hawksley and Tim Foxley for finding the time in uh, joining this discussion on the Weekly Defence Podcast. Gentlemen, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Richard. To our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about this topic, all three of the speakers today will be participating in an online seminar on the 20th of July by the Democracy Forum detailing the governance of Afghanistan and the impending US withdrawal from the country. This episode of the Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, Viasat. As always, a big thanks to everyone who took the time in being a part of the episode. And for our listeners, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and tell a friend or a colleague about the podcast. Until next week, thanks for listening.